Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, role is high fit. Compassion, great passion, fiction, ultimate goal. Glory, relentless training, pain. Pain. (laughs) Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to possibly one of the greatest episodes of The Row Show. As always, it's myself, Lawrence Britton, and with me. It's Jake Green, and today, ladies and gentlemen, by the title, you know we're speaking to one of the the greats in the sport, an absolute legend, and uh, none other than himself, Hamish Bond, coming off fresh from winning another Olympic gold in Tokyo as part of the men's aid. But Hamish, you know, is a, is a man of many talents, and in this interview, not only are we going to get into his experiences at Tokyo, but we're also going to have a, a deep dive and, and have a look back way back when he was racing in that fall. And of course, we've got to get into those pairs years with Eric Murray. And uh, I think, you know, everyone out there is going to love the insights that we're going to get from Hamish. And, you know, Lawrence, I think what were the, the takeaways from you chatting to Hamish? Oh, man, it was such an awesome chat. I, I mean, I really think it's it's up there with our best episodes. And our currently our best episode on uh, our numbers is... Uh, Sir Eric. Eric Murray so it's yeah. really cool to to get the other side of the Kiwi pair and get Hamish and you know having had Eric on the show to talk about it having had Noel Donaldson on the show talking about the coaching of this this crew you know it allowed us to go so much deeper into into Hamish you know we could really get into kind of his rowing the rowing style and then going into I mean maybe in part two it's it's more in there but like going into the eight and and talking about the eight and how he made that transition you know even just his stint in cycling is just impressive you know he's such he's an incredible athlete actually i mean mm. if if you really get down to it he is i mean i know jake has had a man crush on him for for a couple of years now but he is one of the <laughs> the all-time greats and and really is an impressive um persona in the in the rowing community yeah i definitely think so and you know i think uh uh, uh, someone like Hamish doesn't need too much of uh, an introduction as the listeners know. But, you know, I think, you know, one thing about this interview, I think we, what we really try to do is, is maybe get in, in, into the parts of his story that may, you may not have access to, as I'm sure everyone out there knows about their pair years. And we do get into that, but we try to look at it at an angle that maybe hasn't been covered before. Um, and we do spend a, a bit of time getting into the elements of a story that aren't covered so much by mainstream media. So, you know, I think I really hope that, you know, the people found it as insi- insightful as what Lawrence and I did, because I think, you know, there, there's many, many layers to the legacy that Hamish has left behind. And I think some of those layers have yet to be um, looked upon. For sure, Jake, you, you you really nailed it. And I mean, you guys are really, everyone is going to enjoy this episode a huge amount. There's, you know, an absolute legend in the sport talking about, you know exactly how he he thinks he's made it, and he was really open and really honest with us, which I thought was uh, was really special. And yeah, just such a such an epic chat. And I mean, it went on for you know over two hours, so we got some seriously good content uh, for a long time coming uh, to you guys. And yeah, I think uh, shout out to our patrons. You guys are our legends. Send us in, send us amazing questions. Uh, we'll we'll sneak those in at the end, although they actually 
kind of littered all over the place. And what else, Jake? Let's talk about our new partnership. Our new partnership, Lawrence, and we are very excited to to let you guys know that we have partnered with uh, Rowing South Africa to promote and talk about the World Rowing Masters Championships that are going to be held in South Africa in 2023. And what an incredible opportunity. And we know, you know, Masters is, is an incredibly uh, pivotal part of our sports. And what a fantastic opportunity to go visit a, a, a rowing a crazy rowing culture and maybe a part of the world that a lot of uh, rows out there haven't been to. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's got to be hosted in 2023 out Plot South Africa and I want a fantastic opportunity. Um, I know Lawrence and I are going to be there in person. So we'll probably set up some meet and greets and a lot of things um, um, to do while the mass is there. What else are, what else can people look out for Lawrence? Yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, being able to come to South Africa for for a World Masters is going to be something quite special. You know, you're going to be able to make a, a whole trip about uh, a trip out of it. You know, come to South Africa first of all, get some amazing racing in at our pristine Lake Rudderplot, mm. and uh, you know, it's it is really a special training venue. It's a venue that I've rode at for a number of years, and it's it's definitely a, a, a quality rowing venue. So. I think that alone is very special, but I mean, I would make a whole trip out of it. I would go up to Kruger and and spend some time there in the bush, and then also going down to to Cape Town and and experiencing uh, the beautiful coastline of South Africa. I think it's it's definitely going to be worth it. And I think you know, twenty twenty three is post COVID, and you know, it'll be that prime time to to get out of the the house, get out to the country, mm. and just to have a good adventure. Yeah, just like Lawrence said, you know, the tourist opportunities out there are incredible. The Kruger's right there. The Blyde River Canyon's right there. So, you know, I've done some touristing myself in, in South Africa, and it's, it's the incredible opportunities out there. So, if you guys are interested, 100% check it out. I can tell you that Lawrence and I are going to be there, and uh, it's going to be a fantastic event and a fantastic group of rowers, and probably probably the most passionate set of rowers that are in the community. So, check it out for sure guys and yeah i think anything else jake go share the show thanks for listening really enjoy it it's it's gonna be such a roller coaster ride and we'll see you guys at the end enjoy enjoy guys so i mean hamish to just to begin with i mean you know your you know, everyone will know know you from you know the Kiwi Pair years, but I think uh, a lot of people will be unfamiliar with uh, the time you spent, you know, race uh, racing in the uh, 2008 Olympic campaign where you were in the the men's four, and then you know you came into that squad as a relatively young rower. So I thought just for you know just to start off with the podcast, just to share some light, maybe on the experience, you know, racing at under 23s, you know, in, in 2005, I know you guys were a bit disappointed with one of the guys getting sick and you, you came away with the 11th place, but just had to us like racing in 2005 under 23s and then like making that step up into the senior team. And what was that like jumping into r- racing with the seniors and, and getting involved in that fall? Yeah, it's funny. I guess it is a long time ago and, and you're right. I don't, I think there is a fair number of people who don't actually realize that I rode in a four. There's been the odd, uh, comment on instagram or you know various places like oh you should come back in the four and then you can try and win every event i was like well actually if you do your research <laughs> i have done that it was a long time ago there was life pre-eric or pre pre yeah. but 
Yeah, so I I was an under twenty three four in two thousand and five, and yeah, we we I think we got last. I'm pretty sure we got last. Have you looked it up? I'm pretty sure we got last. Yeah, we no, definitely you were, didn't. Do- you were you were last. I was trying to give you the you know <laughs> let the listeners have a bit of a, a benefit of the doubt saying you came eleventh, no. but unfortunately that was last place there. Last is yeah yeah okay. We can say eleventh, but we I know it was last. Um, we did have yeah. we did have illness in the crew, and and it obviously affected us, but. I don't think we were based off that result. We probably weren't going to win, but um, yeah, again, I guess good good experience. Not not a positive experience. Uh, there was elements, I guess, of hard. We trained hard. We just perhaps didn't go very fast, um, and that was a similar experience to my junior. I did two junior eights in the previous years, and um, my second year we had quite a talented crew, but I don't feel as though we were coached particularly well. We didn't ever really did any race pace stuff, and um, yeah, just underprepared, even though I think we had an average crew erg of something like 6.11 or 6.12, which is a pretty strong junior crew. Mm. Well, it was for New- certainly was for New Zealand at that time. Um, and then, yeah, going into... I was actually, but after after that um, 2005 under 23 year, I was back training in the South Island where I'm from. Um, I wasn't part of the high performance squad or anything at that time. We, we relocated to Cambridge for under 23s and then went back home uh, to the South Island. I was training with my coach who had coached me through school. And uh, getting towards the end of that year, um, Carl Meyer, who had been in the squad for must have been three three or four years at, at that point um he was actually an old boy of my high school and he was coached by my coach previously when he was at school he was a little bit disgruntled with um I can't exactly remember what the the situation was whether it was who he got to row within the peers or the opportunities that he was being afforded in the national squad um so he decided to take himself out of the summer squad um, and moved down to the South Island and trained with me, which might sound simple, but um, it's actually quite a bold move for, in the New Zealand team to more or less say, if not if you, but maybe stuff you. I'm going to go yeah. create my own opportunities, create my own path away from the squad system, away from all the resources, which you know weren't weren't massive in those days, not compared to now. But you know there were still resources available. Uh, so he came down to to the South Island and we trained in Twizel, which is in the middle of nowhere. Like you guys have places like it's probably similar ish to where you guys go train on the it's a hydro dam or something, isn't it? Yeah, in Sutu. Yeah, yeah. So this is a hydro dam, hydro lake um, up against the Southern Alps. It's really picturesque and serene, but the town only exists because the dam was built there, um, mm. and it's probably. Oh, at least two hours to any town that you would of any note. Two hours to an airport, put it that way. Um, and yeah, so it's pretty isolated. But my parents actually lived there at the time. Um, so we, Carl lived in my garage, and and I I had a single bed at my parents' house. And yeah, we spent a, it would have been at least two two three months um, training at, at Twizel with our, my coach, who was probably eighty. 83 84 at that time so yeah a bit of a bit of a move to to leave the squad but we yeah. yeah we had our ups and downs I learned a lot from Carl so I was only 19 or 20 and Carl's nickname is boot camp um because he runs his 
runs his stuff like a boot camp. <laughs> um, you know, like every yep. he's like a drill he's like a drill sergeant. You know, like a drill sergeant from a, a movie. Yeah, Eric said that he was um, he was probably the most consistent with uh, the training, Carl Meyer. Um, and yeah, he must have like, been like the first senior guy that you probably had a lot of experience with rowing. I mean, he was he w- wasn't like a, a veteran senior, but he, you know he had raced the previous season in the men's fall, so it must have been good to row yeah, with from the senior team. Yeah, at that point there was no real veterans in the New Zealand team. Everyone petered out or got beaten by younger people by the time they were sort of 24, 25. That was it. And then a new a new generation came through. So Carl must have been 23, which seemed old to me at 19 or 24. Um, and, yeah, he, he he had high expectations. And, yeah, I just flogged myself to, to match him and, and just the intensity, I suppose. So it was probably, you know, like Carl wasn't known as a great uh, – technician i suppose he's sort of uh wooden maybe the best way to describe him you know <laughs> like not exactly fluid um but he he certainly tried hard and i learned i learned so much from that 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 summer and we ended up placing second at the national champs in the pier and that that basically got me my foothold in the four uh which uh yeah was, we we didn't have much success in 2006 um yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was just hard training, you know, like it was hard for me as a young 1920, it was physically demanding, uh, emotionally demanding, I guess I was 1920 and all the other guys were 24, 25. So anything that went wrong, particularly Eric, you know, like <laughs> anything that went wrong was my fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that sort of jam. I was easy fodder to blame things on, but I think I, I slowly worked my way through that just through training just showing you know turning up and once you take them down a few times on the erg every once in a while they go okay this guy's yeah. this guy's all right this guy's but, the know, real deal here. once once you slap someone about on the erg there's uh you're sort of in yeah. their respect um yeah so we started off a little bit shaky in 2006 and then 2007 uh, like we could, I couldn't really put my finger on it. We had a decent summer. We trained hard, um, but everything just snowballed in the right direction. We had one crew change. James Dellinger came into the crew, and we just really got a roll on. Um, we turned up to Amsterdam was the second World Cup, I'm guessing, uh, back in 2007, and we we won that World Cup. Uh, so mm. the British who were I think 20-odd, 25-something races unbeaten at that point. The British four, Pete Reid, Hodge, uh, Steve Williams, and Tom James um, were unbeaten and going really well, really strong. But they actually decided to do the eight that regatta just for a little bit of variation. So we came up against the strong. There was another Dutch combination that was really strong. And then on their home regatta, they had a decent lead, and it's actually quite a good race. It's one of my... Well, it's pretty blurry because it's 2007, but if I do track it down on the internet, it's actually quite a good watch because that was that was when we had Young Buck sprint speed and we, we took, oh, I don't know, like two lengths in the last 500 and probably mm. a length in 200 metres or something like that. Um, so that was our first win and, and that was something, it was just really notable because up in, especially the year before, I really had this kind of imposter syndrome. Um, you know, young turning up and being like, oh, just, you know, like these Eastern European dudes, uh, arms are as big as my legs, you know, like it's just like, yeah. I'm, I'm out of my depth here. What am I doing here? 
And, you know, mm. every race you're starting and you're getting behind and you're just suffering and groveling. Um, so to sort of get that win, I always, I sort of say, you, you almost need a fluke, fluke that first win somehow just to give yourself a bit of self-belief that you that you actually belong. And that certainly gave that to us. And then we rolled through to Lucerne and and knocked the British off for the first, they, that was their first loss they'd had in the semi-final, I think 27 races or something unbeaten. And then we ended up, we sort of probably raced our final in the semi-final, which was fine at that stage. You know, it was great experience. And we came away with third and uh, I think the Dutch won and the British were second. Um, so, and then, yeah, we had a, a great, great camp in between 2000 and in between the third World Cup and the World Champs. We were tucked away in this town called Lengries and the Bavarian sort of foot, like the foothills down there. Um, the town really, so it was where the New Zealand eights used to train back in the seventies and eighties. So there was a few, few old goats around that, um, you know, remembered the boys from sort of 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and they really hosted us well. They had a beer festival on at, at that time. Um, like mm. all the, the re- like they, it was like every three years that region or that town hosted it. So all the other towns from around the region would come in. They had this massive marquee and the whole, um, you know, the whole basically Oktoberfest jam in this wee town, but way more authentic probably than Oktoberfest because it was just the locals. Um, so we were all invited along to that and treated as guests of honour and stein after stein. So it's like I was quite serious. So <laughs> like I'd I'd have my one stein out of respect and then I'd be like, okay, <laughs> that's you enough. I'm still training tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, so that was probably me and Carl on the one stein and then Eric and James probably had had enough for the rest of us. Had, uh, combined. Yeah. So was <laughs> I was going to say, nights. They, would have, they would, I'm sure they would have had enough for, for all four of you. And I think two things that I'm I'm really impressed with your with your memory. I mean, you're batting out these results. I mean, we have them on our on our notes, and uh, no mistakes so far. You know, usually when you're going back that far and after that many races, there's definitely going to be a bit of uh, a bit of haziness. But uh, I see. Well, uh, it's, it's not too bad because I only have to remember results from there through to 2009, and then it was first. For eight yeah. years. <laughs> so you made, I suppose that you, uh, that does help. You made the data collection for me quite easy. The the other thing I wanted to ask about in that it was it was in our in our notes is like the you guys spent a lot of time in Europe, you know, and obviously this year is different, but all the other years, you know, it's arrive at the World Cups and kind of stay all the way to to World Champs and you know, how was that in the team? And uh, obviously each year is different, but what is that dynamic of like m- almost kind of immigrating to, to Europe every year for, for a couple of months? Yeah, well, I, I guess that's sort of us and the Australians, um, Chinese yeah. sometimes have long times overseas, Americans, Canadians, probably to a lesser degree, a little bit closer. But yeah, I don't think, um, well, I did, you, I, I've noticed that like when the Europeans go to Japan or they did come to world champs down here in 2010 and you'd think they'd flown to the moon, you know, like the way, the way they carry on um, mm. in terms of the jet lag and how it's like, bro, we do this every year, twice twice a year sometimes. Um, so it is mainly the reason we stay over is um, to get the racing Um and it's New Zealand winter at home. So the times that we have come home, it is really challenging coming home from the European summer back into, you know, sometimes negative degrees um, training. It's, it, it's really hard to, I guess, stay on your mojo and, and not get 
mentally or physically you know, get sick and that, that seems to be quite frequent. You're always in a little bit of a vulnerable state, I think, when you fly halfway across the world. Um, mm. So in terms of the training in Europe and, um, yeah, when you're young, it's, it's fine, you know, like when you're in your 20s, sweet, take me to Europe. <laughs> I'll hang around for three for three months. Um, and, yeah, we've seen some – we've had some great training bases. We've probably – that's been the one challenge is that I don't feel as – I guess we're blessed that we do have a great training base at Lake Karapiro, but I don't feel as though we've ever found anywhere that, you know, it doesn't have its chinks, that that's yes. not, you know, has not quite as good as Karapiro. So I'm sure it exists somewhere. but. Um, yeah, we haven't found something that that's absolutely perfect. You know, like you want the decent hotel food is a massive priority, especially for a male rower. I feel as though if you can get an eight or nine out of ten in the food category, you can put up with a lot. Sorts you know, lot. like you yeah. can put up with rough water. You can put up with you know, like all this other. If the food's good, you can you can handle a lot. Um, so that's certainly a priority, and we've definitely been to some dodgy. Oh man, some shockers over the years. Um, in particular, my, the, wor- the worst ones that I ever remember uh, Czech Republic at Rechitze. We chained there in 2006 for a couple of weeks, and that was food was diabolical um, like gravy on sawdust. Eh? It was rough. <laughs> and, yep. then, um, and the other one was Gravelines in the north of France. So staying at this little hotel. And there's like this fish on the table <laughs> that stays there till dinner and you get served. Uh, I, I only did two weeks there. It was enough. But the men's for it, there was a couple of crews ended up. We went over to Belgium um, after a couple of weeks, but there was other crews that stayed there for something like eight weeks. And I think oh, they felt man. like they're just a, a, a state escape from a gulag or something by the time they got out of there. We, I raced uh, university championships in Gravelines. The course was quite interesting. It was massive mound to supposedly yeah, protect, protect the from wind, the wind yeah. but the wind came from the other side so it pretty much did nothing um it was a interesting experience yeah that was uh that was an experience so yeah there's been a few places like that but overall um you know i've i've enjoyed my time in europe and, and towards the end of my or towards the latter years um I've managed to have wrangle a single room a lot of the time, so don't have to bunk down with Eric. I mean, we usually, we quite often would mix it up and 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 room with other guys, but yeah, I've definitely spent my fair share of time in what well, I suppose a twin room, isn't it? You know, like within arm's yes. reach of Eric sleeping uh, on a bed. Um, yeah, there are a lot of years yeah. though. Hey, I can imagine uh, putting up with Eric. Hey, eh? <laughs> yeah, like we we got to this. Yeah, we we definitely got to an okay point. Like he's pretty. He's pretty respectful, I suppose, and I'm, uh, you know, like he'll, he he, do, he doesn't get pissed off at much, and if he does, he sort of gets over it really quickly. So yeah, um, that's a good partner to have. Like I, I was probably, I don't know if emotionals, but yeah, Eric is he's very yeah, pretty much everything's water off a duck's back. You know, like I could throw obscenities at him or something for half a day, and then the next day he'd be like, nah, whatever. Um, what yeah. never happened but yeah it was it's it's a, it's great to have a, a partner like that you'd kind of need at least one in a long-term combination yeah mm. definitely what i find like when i'm uh, when you're rooming with someone or like when you you realize like how different people like sleep because you know uh do i when i rode with sean then he would 
any noise in the night. So like if my phone just <laughs> vibrated or beeped or something would wake yeah. him up and he wouldn't get to back to sleep. So like in the, the like, as we're going to bed, he's like making sure that like everything is off, everything is on quiet. And then like you room with other guys who just sleep like the dead and it doesn't even matter yeah. what, uh, what is happening. Yeah, no, I'll, uh, Eric was like, I'll wake up at midnight and I'll just need a glow. He's got his laptop on playing some World of Warcraft or something. I'm like, fucking hell, we've got like training in six hours or something. And then, yeah. yeah, he'd sort of do that a few days. And then one day he'll just crash out in the middle of the day for six hours or something <laughs> and catch up. Whereas I was sort of, yep, 9 p.m., earplugs in, eye mask on. <laughs> I just, and I just go around, I just turn off the lights and he'll be like, oh, whatever. <laughs> And I just go to bed. Yeah. So once I turn the lights off, you know, he'd be quiet, um, but he'd be sitting there beavering away or watching a movie or something. So we certainly kept different hours, but um, it worked out all right. Oh, that's really funny. It sounds like a, a good combination there. But I mean, so I mean, like going back to the, you know, the rowing, rowing in the fall, I think, uh, you know, the, that World Championships for you in 2007 that must have been, I mean, you were chatting a little bit about like uh, the imposter syndrome and whatnot, but that must have been a huge boon. I mean, that still must be one of your um, highlights when you look back on your career, um, especially back then in that four. I mean, it's it seemed like such a you know magical moment to to get that right. Yeah, it, it was. Um, uh, there's nothing like that sort of unexpected win, you know, that, and that mm. was the great contrast, I guess, this year and in 2007 versus all well apart from the first year i guess with eric but every other time or maybe even the first race you know that was a win where you know you hoped to do well and you knew you knew you could do well but to actually get across the line you get that sort of unadulterated joy as opposed to just relief of you know meeting expectation and that's that's i guess the hard thing about being at the top is that you can't actually exceed expectation anymore all you can do is meet your own and everyone else's expectations. So it's really hard to get that, you know, great sense of joy or um, that you get from an unexpected win, which certainly 2007 was. Um, and, yeah, like I said earlier, we, we just snowballed everything. We just started fizzing. Well, everything was going okay pretty well throughout the year, but certainly in that mm. camp in Germany and the, in the build-up, we really um, started hitting our straps and um, – you know, just when you're doing short bursts and you can just feel the speed and you can feel everyone's connected together and um, yeah, you just knew what you were doing. That's basically that's you know a lot of the times I've you sort of go to race and you're like, I'll start and I'll see what happens. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know what anyone else is doing. You know, like and you mm. just sort of see what happens. Whereas I, you know, it's sort of when you're in, particularly in a stroke seat, which I was in 2007. Um, when you take it up and you know what's going to happen, you know what yeah. it's going to feel like. And, and that's such a confidence booster when you start a race. You're like, okay, I know what the rhythm's going to feel like out of the gates and, and after 500, that sort of thing. Whereas um, certainly some of the previous races that were done, you have no idea what's going to happen halfway down the track. Um, mm. and, and that was the biggest thing. And, and then to, that's where you can sprint off the, at the end of a race, you know. that's You have to have that um, knowledge of how you're going to feel down the track and know that you've got another gear up your sleeve. It's not just rowing on hope. So, um, yeah, it was great. And great, like Munich is an awesome venue. And um, it's a shame they don't actually have more regattas there because, you know, the Germans are obviously great uh, rowing supporters. Uh, so, yeah, it was a great time. Just touching on... 
you know, your first Olympics, obviously it was, you know, a little bit disappointed. You guys must have been going in with quite, quite high hopes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it must be still a, 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 quite a big experience for your first Olympics. It's like quite a young athlete at that stage of the game going to Beijing. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously not, not the way you wanted it to go. But uh, it'd be interesting to hear what the, that you know that whole experience uh, was like for you. Yeah, well, in hindsight, I could have been on for Steve Regrave or Pinsent. You know, we, yeah. we were going in as world <laughs> champions, and I could have had my fourth gold medal this year. But um, it, like you say, we had high expectations. But by the time we got to the Olympics, <laughs> we were our form was sort of written on the wall. You know, like we had struggled all through mm. the World Cup. And the we just yeah we couldn't put our finger on it. We trained, we had obviously high expectations. We we had our break after the world champs came back, and you know we're like, all right, we're we're on. You know this is Olympics. This is our time. Or uh, and it, I wouldn't say, yeah even throughout the year. You know like we one thing we actually really struggled with our coach at the time and Dick Tonks who was the head coach. Um, they hated each other <laughs> and. They had a bit of a blowout and we basically got excluded from the squad uh, in terms of training. So we didn't participate in any of the squad sessions or anything like that. So I think that was quite a um, that was quite a handicap for us. That's a big hallmark and strength of the New Zealand system is the internal racing. And you know, once you're excluded from that, you, you lose that benchmark. And at that time, um, the majority of the time it was the twins, uh, the Everswindale twins, although they did start to struggle a little bit in those last couple of years. Um, but you just had lost that benchmark of where you're at. Um, and not only a benchmark, but we, you take massive confidence. Like if you're winning the squad racing in New Zealand, you uh, generally turn up and you win medals at Worlds and Olympic Games. So that mm. was probably that was one thing I sort of put my finger to has been a handicap and and I think instead of the the biggest impediment was that we just didn't know what it was that we did well in two thousand and seven you know like we were young and we just it just clicked but we didn't we couldn't verbalize we couldn't articulate what it was that we actually did well so when it came time to replicate that in two thousand and eight you know we were clutching at straws so we we're always trying to find get back to something that we we didn't we, we we didn't know what it was we had done well in the first place so we probably started in a similar place in terms of the start of the season but 2007 snowballed up and 2008 snowballed in the opposite direction and and the performance mm. at the end of the games was but we got it together a little bit just before the olympics but yeah we came fourth in our semi-final by half a second i think to the french and then first second and third and our semi-final got gold silver bronze so um, you know, like we were close, but you know, we we weren't. Um, yeah, we were probably good enough to make the final, but it was a funny old year because we had, I think, first, second, third from the world champs were all in the B final. Us, the Italians, and the Dutch. No one made the A final. Um, so yeah. quite a topsy turvy um, transition in those two years. So mm. um, disappointing uh, result, but. I, I guess I got over it quite quickly and it was my first Olympics. I was only 21, 20, 20, 22 years old. And so I thought, you know, like disappointing, but I can grow, move on from here. Um, it's not the end of my career. Uh, so, yeah, I, I sort of turned the page, I think, quicker than the other guys for sure um, and sort of got back on the horse quite quickly 
uh, after coming back to New Zealand um, and and actually probably really took a step up over that summer post-Olympics. We had a good group of guys who had all missed probably expectation or underachieved at the Olympics. So main protagonist being myself, Nathan Cullen, who was in the double with Rob Waddell. So they dominate. They, they spanked the yeah. World Cups and then, um, you know, didn't get it right at the, the Olympics. So I think mm. they, they got fourth. Um, Mahe obviously got sick and got bronze. So mm. he was a little bit pissed. And Storm Uru and Pete Taylor in the double, lightweight double, they perhaps didn't do as well as they expected. So that was basically the nexus of, of a squad that all trained in singles from it would have been through the, the first half of the summer, so probably September, October, November, December, post-Olympics, and we just went at each other <laughs> and, yeah, really, really leveled up. Um, so that was, I guess, uh, an, an opportunity for me to, to take a step mm. forward and challenge myself against Nathan and Mahe in particular, who were, were, were really strong scholars. Yeah. You were young, and then you still had huge confidence. You already were world champion, so... Yes, the, the games hadn't gone your way, but there was still like huge opportunity, I'm sure, for you looking forward. So as you say, you got over it quite quickly, back into training. I'm sure you're pretty hungry. And then that's you you mentioned the single, and I mean you've done a lot of of time in the single. And that was actually one of the the questions from our from our patrons, from our, our supporters was have you had, did did you ever think of of going into the single and, and, and giving it a, a bash in the single? Because, you know, the the times and the, the stuff you've done at home has uh, has always been uh, fairly impressive. Yeah, like I've never really seriously considered it internationally. Um, obviously, Mahe was ruling the roost early on in my career, so that was foolish <laughs> to try and to try and take that on. Um, mm. And then, yeah, obviously, had a really thing, good thing going with Eric. So again, there wasn't really that opportunity, or I began like a. Oh, yeah, let's not do an uncontinue uh, our rain. Let's uh, just go race a single. Um, post Rio, I suppose, was another juncture. But you know, I, I was kind of fatigued with with rowing in general. Uh, I guess we'll come to that. But went cycling, obviously, and went way further down a rabbit hole than I intended to there. Um, <laughs> so, and then finally, I guess there was the opportunity would have been when I came back. Um, after cycling but at that point Robbie was doing really well um, I and to be honest my situation I had at that point two young kids um, and 33 32 33 years old it's like really you know like I, I there was multiple factors I thought am, am I good enough at this age or, or do I have the tackling feel and the the time that I would have to put in to be competitive internationally. So this is, it's hard for me to, I, I believed I could be competitive um, and, you know, maybe get up for a, around the medals in the single, but um, I just wasn't super motivated to do it at that point. Um, mm. If there was an opportunity when I was sort of in my absolute prime, I guess, late twenties when I was battling Mahe at home, um, maybe, uh, but yeah, towards the end, when the opportunity really arose and, and I just wasn't super motivated. Like that was, I'm sure we'll get to this as well. Like the, the going into the eight was a, a bigger draw card, you know, than going out in a masochistic 
campaign in the mm. single by myself. Like, like it just didn't have, it just wasn't massively inspiring. So I did enjoy yeah. my, we did, so I really only did two, two summers, I suppose, in 20, 2013, 14 and 15, uh, 14, 15, um, back here, um, where I, Eric and I both had the single for the majority of the summer, um, and that was just to break up the monotony of being in the pier year in, year out, um, give us something different to do, something different to focus on. And yeah, it was, it was a way to get motivated in those down downtimes when you're sort of nine months out from world champs. So it's yeah. hard to get fired up for world champs when they're nine months away. But if you say, oh, you can have a go at the Olympic and world champion in two months time and uh, okay, okay, right, yeah, oh, I can get up for that. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed having my guy at Mahe. Maybe I didn't catch him at quite his best, but I think that time we did two races under 6.40, I think, in that season against each other, I think in the final of the national champs and one of our domestic regattas we went under. Well, I went under 6.40 and he might have been right on, on 6.40, so we weren't we weren't pissing about, that's for sure. No, that's 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 pretty that's pretty fast in the, in the skull there. Did you and uh, did Eric ever give you give you a hard time in the single? Uh, see, when we started off in the single, I'm Eric had actually done a fair bit in the single because I would inevitably get injured quite a bit. So he had actually spent a fair bit of time in the single while I'd been training on the bike with rib stress fractures and that sort of thing. So I think he actually backed himself um, to be to be better than me in the single. So. I think he I, he didn't he struggled a little bit with that, but not for too long. You know, like he like I said, he gets over things quite quickly. But uh, mm. it became evident that actually I was faster than him in the single. Um, and yeah, he had one race. One race, he got me in a in a shitty heat, and oh, he wouldn't shut up about it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, there, there, were, there weren't too many times. Erg was Eric's jam, and it was there weren't a whole lot of times. Certainly in tests, I don't think I. I'm pretty sure I probably never beat Eric in a test, yeah. but training I, I get him every every once in a while. But um, yeah, the single the single was my jam uh, at yeah. that point. So it, it was great. Like he, yeah, it gave him something to do. Yeah, he. There was the odd <laughs> session where he'd you know he'd pike halfway back. He'd be like, Fuck, screw this throw in the towel and just paddle and I'd put like a K on and on the return leg. Um, but most of the time he was up for it and he'd try and, and I'm certain it got him physically in better condition than what we would have uh, done otherwise. Yeah. And I think like the skull is always um, a fantastic tool for, you know, just it's, it's uh, I think there's a lot of like uh, character building, if you can say that. And I think the technique you, you, you develop in the skull carries over very nicely into whatever boat that you actually find yourself in. But um, I mean, just to continue the the bit of the the speculative conversation around the skull. I'm in 2008. Uh, you know, you and Haim, you and Eric actually didn't in the pair and did some good work at, at national champs. And you, I think it was because one, I think Carl or someone else got injured in the fall, and you raced at national champs, and you ended up beating uh, George and Nathan Twaddle in the national championships by quite a fair margin. So I'm sure they looking back now. There's always the you know the what if the what if scenario of going to the Beijing Olympics in the pair. At the time, it didn't make sense considering you were all champions. But I mean, it's always a, it's a fun conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. So you basically nailed it. Um, we we trained as peers when we were part of the four, and um, 
yeah, Carl and I actually, yeah, so Eric's from a different club. So I didn't row with him at National Champs, but we'd row as part of, as a summer squad oh. crew um, <clears throat> at domestic regattas in the build-up to National Champs. So I did race nationals with Carl, and I, that was the first year we won, was 2008. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I had raced with Eric in the build-up regattas, and, and, it, and it had clicked. Like uh, Eric and I were the fastest combination when we were training together. That was that was well, yeah, like it wasn't massive, but it was obvious. And like you say, we did race Nathan Twaddle and George Bridgewater, who were the incumbents and had been world champs 2005 and then two seconds to Jin and Duncan Free. Um, so, yeah, I, I think had we given it a serious go, I think we definitely would have given um, Drew and, and Duncan a run. Who knows how it would have gone, but mm. um, that was really the where the – combination started was those races that we had uh in 2008 uh and 2007 where it sort of go okay this this has legs should the opportunity arise and um that was yeah i i guess i made that happen after beijing it sort of we'd, mm. we'd done our block in the single eric had actually been away did he, he i think he just had an extended break he wasn't doing much training and um then i yeah i had him up i think i wrote a i wrote him an email um basically proposed the situation and how, what i i thought it, it was it was basically i looked around the squad and thought what are my best opportunities going forward and that was where i thought you know this is the best chance of of success um for me and I had to go to the selectors, or mainly to Dick Tonks actually, because he was coaching mm. those single that single squad. Our coach from the four had walked away; he was done. Like they, him and Tonks, almost had a fight in Beijing. I think they had each other by the scruff of the neck, about to about to throw down. Um, <laughs> so he'd left, and um, yeah, I'd sort of moved over to Dick's squad because that was the default. And he he actually wanted to put together a quad um, with me. Um, Nathan Cohen, Joe Sullivan, and Matthew Trot, who was a long, long campaigner in the in the quad. Um, but I sort of said, yeah, I could go okay, but I think I have better better chance in the pair. So I sort of had to twist his arm as much as you can with Dick. I basically said, oh yeah, I can't remember exactly what I said, but that was I said, oh, I want to try the pair, and I got Eric on board. He got his wife on board, which was probably the biggest hurdle. And he, she gave us basically two years till the till the twenty ten our home world champs. She said, "Yeah, like if if things are looking good or promising by then, then you know you can have an extra two years and go through to the London." Um, so that was that was sort of where the pair started, and and it, it basically right off the bat, we we certainly didn't have the consistency that we developed later on, but we mm. had pockets of speed and, and we knew it could go well. We had some absolute shockers as well, but um, yeah, it became evident that that was a, it was a good boat. Yeah. And you had some like really tight races early on. I mean, those first two years in the, in the, in the pair were, I mean, some of those races are brutal. I mean, that 2010 race, that At might 20, be one of the oh, best his races to watch because it is, you know, Jake was saying the other day he was watching and he was saying that it was every time he watches it, he still like can't believe how close it is um, by the yeah. end of that race. I mean, it's the only race that I genuinely thought, oh, crap, this ain't going to go our way. 
uh, in terms of racing in the pier. Um, yeah, I, I vividly, I remember being sort of six, maybe 600, 700 metres out, and I think the British were a good half length, probably up on us, maybe even more, um, and thinking, oh, you know, like, what am I going to say? Like, <laughs> what, you know, what, at the finish line. So I'd, I hadn't thrown in the towel, but I was definitely, it's, it's odd the thoughts that you can have yeah. whilst racing down the course, especially in a pier where, you know, things just seem to go a little bit, slower you know like there's, there's less hectic i don't think i'd have those thoughts in an eight but um and appear in a single there are there are those moments for self-reflection over a 2k race and i mm. vividly remember thinking oh i'm gonna have to work out what to say because you know we, we lost uh in front of the home crowd but fortunately yeah got up got a think got a nose in front about 250 to go and 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 hung on um, and that was a great great experience at home where really like a decent sized grandstand chock-a-block and you could hear I, I remember the women's peer race before us and they won as well and yes that situation when you're at the start going into the start blocks and you can hear the crowd roaring and cheering um for the for the obviously home home crew winning uh was was certainly a, a, a cool memory sure hmm. that's awesome actually also i don't know exactly i mean i think every rower knows that like that self-doubt you get in the race you know I, even when i think back to to 2016 you know coming to the to the halfway market we were right at the back and we we you you guys had destroyed us through the 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 middle of the race and then like the the italians the british uh australians were, were moving up on us i remember thinking you know it's fine you you've made olympic a final your mom will still love you if you if yeah. you come six. it's not gonna be it's not gonna be the end of the world and uh yeah. yeah i mean those that doubt is is so real and i think it's just like it's just because of how hard the race is and like you know every yeah. if you if you down that belief goes away so quickly yeah 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 it's like i'm suffering and there's a long way to go <laughs> yeah yeah you just especially i think when you're well, for me, younger, I suppose, and didn't quite have as much belief. Um, and that whole year, that was our 2010 was our roughest year in the pier. We just we trained hard, but that was about it. You know, like there wasn't much, there wasn't much good uh, good sensations yeah. <laughs> coming through the boat. It was just a lot of dogged dogged training. Um, so that that was that we just guts that race out. There was nothing mm. more, nothing more in that. Yeah, and then. And then you mentioned, um, you spoke about like how the joy, you know, when you, when you win the first race and you get like that, you know, that joy of, of winning when you, when you didn't really expect it. And then that joy becomes like just trying to meet the expectation. Then I want to ask like on the other side of things, like how did the nerves and the like pressure feel, you know, when you, I mean, when you're on the start line of any race, you're nervous and you, you, you know, you're unsure about the outcome, but then like, as you guys started to win more, how did your like pre-race uh how did like emotions and and nerves go as you were as you started winning more and more and more yeah i think the first four years it wasn't like obviously nerves but we were still more building towards the olympics you know so obviously we wanted to keep the unbeaten going and all that jam but it was all more part of winning the olympics yes um whereas the second four years I guess the unbeaten thing started to take on more meaning and it was just a camel with more straws being put, put <laughs> upon 
is back and and certainly that last year 2016 i we had a we haven't had the best prep to be honest for for rio i think i had a back injury that put me out for a good one or two months after world champs um i've been bike injuries before rio too i'm sure that was a a, a another spin in the works yeah but that was last minute and that was eric so i didn't care you know i was just (laughs) uh, (laughs) i didn't have to deal with that mentally i did for a little bit it was certainly yeah when i was riding along and you you know that that sound of a bike crash and you're like oh shit timing. (laughs) yeah yeah so i turned around and eric's in a pile on the ground uh the day before we meant to fly to rio um fortunately that all all turned out all right but um yeah so in 2016 i think that was it was said no one else could appreciate it i guess unless you're or you could appreciate it but you wouldn't truly understand unless you're in that position um you know we were going out to race um you know our competition and for them it was just oh an opportunity to knock off the kiwi pier so we can go absolutely spastic in the first 500 meters and whatever happens happens you know like we're probably not going to win um but we can have a go whereas for us it was like okay we're in this heat of this world cup one or two or whatever and for most people it's yeah it's an opportunity but it doesn't really matter but for eric didn't he certainly didn't verbalize it but um yeah, I I certainly struggled with that. Okay, you know, you've got seven years or eight years of history riding on this one one race, mm. and you know, although losing that race at World Cup two in twenty sixteen in the heat wouldn't have ruined everything, but you know, like you you still have that mentality um, that's hard to escape. So everything sort of t- starts taking on a on a heavier meaning, and um, that was certainly part of the reason for um taking a break i think post rio and um yeah mentally 2016 was a challenge for me um yeah. just with that that i guess that feeling of of history and and pressure on myself i think yeah. also and, and i think especially just off the back of knowing that we hadn't had our best prep you know like mm. if you if i i was always confident if eric and i had done all that we could we were going to be really difficult to beat whereas i felt that year you know like we we hadn't prepared as best as we could um through injury and there was more things creeping into eric's life um that were you know interrupting training and and bits and pieces like i'd just there'd be days where i'd turn up to the lake and (laughs) eric wouldn't tell me but he'd tell noel that i don't know something had come up probably with zach uh, uh, or something similar um, and I didn't like I understood, but I was pretty unforgiving, I suppose. And, and certainly now, in hindsight, with children of my own, I'm, I, I appreciate it a bit more. And it was amazing yeah. the, the dedication that he was able to put out, um, given the you know challenges he had in his his own life. But um, yeah, he'd just call Noel, and I'd come out of the changing room all ready to go, get in the boat. And Noel would just look at me and be like, oh, he's, <laughs> and he'd have to break the news that Eric's called him in. And then it, it, Noel would wear the, me swearing at, <laughs> swearing at Eric through Noel <laughs> for not turning up to training and that sort of thing. So there was, there was a few of those moments creeping in. So that, that, I guess that was weighing on my mind that we, we weren't in the best shape we could have been. Mm. Sure. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that, and there's, I think if you, if you have a, a partnership like uh, you guys did, there's always going to be, 
tension and and difficult uh, moments and i mean obviously you you made it through unscathed because uh you didn't ever lose the 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 one single heat or or anything else and and on that though because i mean you're saying like how uh you know other crews started going out harder and harder and your race profile you know kind of didn't lend itself to you know a safe uh, bed out the blocks you know often you were you were far down in that uh, first 500 and you know there were a couple times where you know i think the serbians even led you through the the 1500 ones and uh, yeah i think that must have uh, played on those uh, those mental mental strings a little bit mm. yeah well, when we started out i'm pretty sure we were the fastest yeah it definitely it definitely changed over yeah. over the the first like three or four years so it's probably not a big you know we probably started going a second slower because we realized oh actually our best way to row really fast through the middle and at the end is to not be conservative but just not light all our matches in the first 500 you know like that's not yeah. the way that we're going to row fastest down the course. So we probably went one second slower and everyone else went one or two seconds faster because they were conversely thinking, well, if we're not in front of New Zealand early, we're certainly not going to pass them, you know, later. in the second thousand yeah. or later. So we've got to go now. And I think that was where you saw that swing and what was happening in the in the start of the race. Um, yeah, I do. I vaguely remember that race. That I think it was Lucerne, the, the Serbians. Mm got a march on us for quite a long time i don't know what year was it 2015 2016 doesn't matter but um yeah i, I think i always had confidence that people if anyone was in front of us they were doing more than us you know like they were yeah they were really working to be there um so that attitude is fine until someone actually finally holds on <laughs> and you don't overtake them and then you look like mm. a fool but um yeah, we yeah, fortunately that that didn't happen before uh, before Rio. Yeah, and so Hamish, looking at your your pairs years, there's obviously, you know, you you guys had that that incredible streak from 2009 to 2016, um, but I mean that it is really split into two nice parts. You know, the first part is getting that first Olympic gold medal, and the part. The, the the aspect I want to get into is obviously the, the changing of the coaches. You know, you were under Dick Tonks for those first four years and the second uh, four years you were under Noel Donaldson. Both of them absolutely fantastic coaches. But I'm sure, you know, we've chatted to Noel, obviously, and, you know, we haven't chatted to Dick, but we, you know, we've done, we've heard a, like heard about him. I think his, <laughs> his, repu- his reputation precedes him a bit. So, you know, chat us to us about switching over and, and focusing on what it was like working on a deck who was quite a hard trainer and maybe not the best uh, communicator in, in many ways. I'm sure it must have been a tough time, but it probably gave you the the legs and, and the aerobic capacity to create such a strong legacy. Yeah, I mean, with Dick, so when we came into the pier, he was head coach Robert L, he coached the Twins, he'd coached Mahe at the start of his uh, time in the single like every success that had been had more or less in the New Zealand team had been coached by Dick. And so we're like, okay, well, easy to jump on this this mm. train, you know? Like they seemed to say, like, okay, we're finally, we're in the squad, you know? Like <laughs> all we've got to do is, um, and literally with Dick, I guess, it doesn't work for everyone, but all you kind of have to do is survive. <laughs> and th- there was moments, um, there was numerous moments where I'd be coming home from training and just be like, this is not worth it anymore. Like, I don't know how hard other people train, but I was certainly at the limit of what I could sustain mentally. I think with Dick, it's 
it's just the regularity, you know, like no, no let up, I suppose. So it's just a lot of it was just 20K morning, 20K night, 20K morning, 20K night. And just that mental fatigue of doing the same thing and, and putting, like going, taking your boat down to the water and putting your feet in shoes that are wet from your sweat in the morning. And, you know, like that wears on, <laughs> that started to wear on me pretty bad. Um, I think what sustained us was the, we, we did have a good wee squad. Um, I guess emotionally to a degree, Mahe and, and Emma, we, we sort of gelled well with, um, and then the women's quad, we had them to train against. So some of them, you know, most of them we got on well with, but we also like to pick on them and um, we knew, like, so they were our natural training partner um, mm. and we knew if we could get in front, then Dick's wrath would be brought down on them and we'd be freed <laughs> to, to escape. So we'd just have to try and get in front of the quad and then we wouldn't be the ones uh, uh, facing the, the um, yeah, Dick's, I guess, whatever mood he was in. Um, so, yeah, here's a here's a really we trained hard. I, I, to be honest, I I feel we're more like greyhounds, you know. Like that's mm. kind of what it felt like a lot of the time. I remember we had an American lightweight double. It was Andy Campbell and uh, what's his name, Will Daly, came out and trained with us. I don't know. Someone must have known Dick um, from in the states, and and they came out and joined our squad. So they sort of joined us in the in the women's quad. But I remember, I don't know, I can't even remember if it was, it must have been pre-London, obviously, because he was still coaching us. But um, I remember coming in and Dick, I don't know if he'd given them a day off or he'd given them a session. But he go, I remember, vividly remember him asking how they felt. I was like, you asshole. You've, over three years, you've never once asked me how I feel. If I'm like, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's a sign I, of respect, though. It's a sign of respect, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea what he, I, like, I'm sure he respects what we achieved and he was part of that. Uh, but I have zero idea what he thinks of me as an athlete or as a person. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Training with Dick, we obviously had, as you know, it's been, if you've read our book, it's all in there, but we had a massive blow up in 2011. Yeah. Um, where like, I, I don't, I'm no, I'm not a doctor, but I think he, might have had some sort of, I don't know if he was depressed or bipolar or what, but he'd been letting things build up and and how it played out, Eric had asked to go down with his wife to a horse, it was like a, a horse of the year, which is like a show jumping event um, out of town, but he was going to be away for a couple of days. Um, yeah, he, well, he'd done several things like this. I mean, just before he left, my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time, was studying in Christchurch, which is in the South Island. And obviously, we we're going overseas for three months. I thought, oh, you know, it might be nice if I saw her for one day mm. in half a year. Um, so I, um, I asked him if I could go down there and train or go down for the weekend or go down Friday night, train on the Erg on Saturday morning in Christchurch and then be back for training on Monday. And he's like, oh, that's, you know, he was so hum about it. He's like, oh, it's not going to set a very good example for, for Eric. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, I'm setting examples for Eric, but whatever. Um, and then we got a message from our, the Rowan New Zealand Secretary, oh, Dick wants to have a meeting um, before, you know, like at two o'clock or three o'clock before the afternoon session. I'm like, oh, this is highly unusual. 
Uh, so we come down and yeah, he just let it rip, like lost his shit at us. So yeah, well, we must be three years unbeaten at this time, and we were you blonde-headed, arrogant mother, or every every profanity you can think of. Mm. Um, if you want to, I've always said, if you want to get a vibe for what it felt like, Google meatloaf blowing up, like meatloaf the singer blowing up on the Celebrity Apprentice. Mm. So there's a huge, if you if you want to get a, an appreciation for the for the the emotion that was flowing from him at that point, like that's that's a good a good a good video yeah. to watch. Um, we'll put a, yeah, we'll put so at that there. point he blew up and um, yeah, it was a pretty tense for we were. I was ready to walk away. I was like, stuff that you know you don't get to treat me you know like this. Um, and we had you know we basically thought like, who's going to take us through to London and actually had a meeting with or a chat with Rob Waddell and he said like. Is Dick your best chance of winning in gold in London? And we're like, yeah, probably. So it's like, well, suck it up. Like, you just take what you need and discard the rest. So it <laughs> really graded me, but we were basically made to, by Roan New Zealand, to grovel back up. He didn't talk to us for about three weeks. We'd just turn up mm. at the allocated time. We'd have to ask the women's quad what we were doing that session. And he would just completely ignore us. And we'd just sort of row. In the periphery, you know, like near <laughs> near the squad. Um, so yeah, just so immature and childish and inappropriate, but whatever. Um, mm. And then I suppose I I had my own inappropriate <laughs> response, and that more or less from that point on, I didn't talk to Dick and Eric was our go between. So same thing, you know, like water off a duck back to Eric. But I was I just took the view, like you know, you don't get to if you're going to yeah. treat me like that, then. I got not much respect for you, so um, whatever you can tell us how far to go, and and that'll be it. So yeah, we 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 didn't have the best relationship for the last couple of years. Um, not that it was Jeez. a great relationship before that, but um, it was functional, and then it became barely functional uh, yeah. through to London. So it was natural that yeah, we were we were done in that situation, and and. I don't know where it came from first, whether it was us or the organization, but yeah, we sort of knew that they were looking for a new coach and um, Noel's name start, started getting thrown around. And um, yeah, that's yeah more or less like we didn't get a whole lot of choice, I don't think. We were still at yeah. the point of being largely dictated to and and we certainly mm. hadn't come up with a better alternative. Um, yeah. So we were sort of about to go out of the frying pan and into the fire and start talking to Spracklin. He was actually, his name was thrown around okay. a bit. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, oh, I think he'd been, that's right. Pre after London, I think maybe had he been sort of discarded by the Canadians. Yeah. I didn't go to, yeah. to Russia, Russia for a little bit. Yeah. yeah so I think did. he was sort of a free agent. So I think we were thinking about pitching to, to Spracklin about coaching us, but yeah, we never, we never ended up there. And, and yeah, Noel, Noel, I think was really good for us. Like he, um, he didn't try and change what we were doing. Yeah, I think he, he just. Yeah. I would on. say, yeah, I'd say like Noel, like, I mean, speaking to Noel, obviously, I mean, you know, he had such a, he's such an extensive background by the time he got to you, like just coaching Australia, obviously famously, you know, uh, coaching the awesome foursome and then, you know, being in charge of a, maybe a bit more higher and a higher position of the overall Australian team doing so well at the 2000, 2004 Olympics. So, I mean, like, you know, 
I'm sure there was a lot of respect both ways. And obviously, I'm sure Noel must have been a bit under pressure, like, no, don't stuff it up to a certain extent. But yeah, he seemed like a very, a very, very technical and, and thoughtful um, um, coach. And it must have been quite a big difference for you guys to, to work with. And I suppose quite nice because I'm sure there was a bit of fatigue with the naturally, of course, with the relationship with Eric and tr- try to keep things fresh. It must have been quite a, a good change there. Yeah, I think Noel managed us pretty well. And he would probably say himself he was as much manager as he was coach probably. Not, mm. I mean, yeah, like I think um, technically we developed a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do at that point. And we were happy to take on, any, on board anything um, that Noel offered. Um, but I think, yeah, we were pretty stuck in our ways by that point, to be honest. Um, so it would have been pretty hard to have made any fundamental changes. Um, but, yeah, he, he was definitely open to us doing new things. You know, we brought in a whole lot more variety to our training program. For the bulk of those four years, we would train in the morning on the water and then in the afternoon we'd sort of do two bikes, two eggs and um, two rows. So we'd only train in the afternoon a couple of times a week. Um, and yeah, Eric and I sort of thrived on that, that variation um, just because, yeah, that was what we struggled with was just the monotony of rowing morning, morning, night, morning, night. So mm. um, that, that was really big for us. And we had new training, had brought on different training partners and just a lot more variety, um, more collaboration. Yeah. So it was just far more, it was just a completely different um, situation. And I suppose it was for Noel was the challenge was just not giving us too much rope, which he was good at, you know, like if we sort of tried to take it too far or get too chicken shit, he'd sort of pull us in line and say, no, we've got to to do the work today. And we were mostly, you know, we were mostly up for it, but yeah, Eric probably wouldn't grizzle, but I grizzle sometimes about (laughs) the training that was put out in front of us. And, um, and he go, no, you just got to suck it up and, and do this one. So generally, once I get into it, I'm fine. It's just the, he just has to, someone has to hear me grizzle for 30 seconds. Yeah. So looking at like all the, the races that uh, that you and Eric did, is there like a, a race or a regatta that stands out for you as like your favorite uh, one that you'd look back on? I mean, obviously the the world best time in in london is is huge but that also sounds like it came with a a whole lot of emotional pressure as well going into into london so is there any any race that really stands out for you um yeah i mean the world the world's fastest or best time is is easy to pick out um Best race. I mean, obviously the most satisfying, probably one of the most satisfying was probably our very first win over the British and the pier. Um, not we won the heat, but then also like to back it up in the final mm. and, and really go, okay, yeah, you know, we are, we mean business. That was, that was quite memorable. Um, and then I think generally 2011 was possibly our best year. Um, mm. Yeah, like we, that was our strong th- point that Eric and I, our performance, our the, a good and a bad performance, there wasn't a whole lot. Yeah, you know, like there might be two or three seconds between a really good performance and a and one that we considered a bit rough. Um, but 2011, I, I think, yeah, we really fundamentally got a good understanding of 
what we wanted to do while we were rowing. And, um, yeah, you've spoken to Eric about the whole Drew Gin thing and um, yeah, just just understanding. I think just getting a – the shift for me was you'd row – in rows in the past in the four and then occasionally in the pair, you'd, you'd get this moment where you're like, oh, this is it. This is – this is like rowing Nirvana, you know, like everything, mm. you're working hard, but it feels easy. You're going fast. You know, like, you know, you're physically on the limit, but it's not, it's not taxing you like it, like mm. it can. And uh, this is, this is rowing. This is, oh, you know, like the Americans in the, like they call it swing in the, that book, uh, yeah, I can't remember what, boys in the boat. Um, mm. I assume that's what they're, they're referring to when, when everything's in harmony. Um, but it wasn't probably until 2011 where we made a few, setup changes and philosophical changes and, and just understanding and what we were doing that we really started to tap into that on a regular basis. Um, I think mm. those first two years, we probably just largely won on just guts and training and ability, I guess, physical ability. But then towards yeah, 2011, 2012, we really started to figure out technically how we can make a boat go fast. Um, so that was that was satisfying and, and yeah, really dominating some of those races in 2011 and and ultimately just feeling as though you're you're touching your that's potential, awesome. I suppose. That's that's the biggest yeah. thing is like knowing that you finish and you go, yeah, that was like you always know, oh, there's more, you know, like I could have done something better, but you know, that's close. That's close to as good as I can be. That's mm. awesome. Flip, that's cool. And then I just have one more, more question on the on the bags. I know we got a lot still to to get into, and uh, we don't want to keep you yeah, the, the whole day. So the the my last one was in 2016. You guys got the the carbon boat, and you only seemed to row it for like a, a a day or two, and then you 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 hung those riggers up, went back to the the aluminium, and I think going back it was about your your back. You you didn't have a have a good experience uh you couldn't get the setup right on your back is that exactly what uh, what went down there yeah so without telling us i don't think they told us we turned up to racing in um 2016 and we must have had two regattas we had lucerne and then was it poznan the second one was that right 2016 doesn't matter um mm. and yeah, we were training in Circe and we go, oh, they've given us a new boat with carbon riggers and we didn't really ask for any of this. So, okay, whatever, you know, we'll go out. But just straight away off the bat, um, just the stiffness, um, I could just, you just feel at the catch, you know, like and, and my stroke is um, very much about, like I jump on it and I jump on it hard um, to more or less, like I've got a grizzly bear behind me and that's one thing I always – um, I like it. There's videos and stuff on YouTube, and I get comments about like, "What the heck are you doing? Like waving all over the boat. Like it just looks." And then there's other. You see other videos of me rowing with, you know, like with James Lash or you know other peer people, and you know, like I'm fine. I'm straight up and down. I'm good. But it's like, have you ever rowed in stroke seat at 90 kilos with a guy who does 541 and is 100 kilos in the bow? So until you've done that, <laughs> do not comment to me on how to row and stroke seat in a pier, I guess. <laughs> I feel free to critique me. Um, but, yeah, that was – that. I guess that was um, – that came to 
the way that I row the boat and, and really hit the front hard, just having the extra stiffness in the carbon rigger, I think it was just creating a real pinch point, I guess, of load in, in my back. Whereas, and you could just feel it. You could just feel like I'm getting every single ounce of this boat at the catch. And and um, I think we did like two rows and I was like, I'm, I'm on the edge. You know, like, I don't know if you've had a bad back, but you sort of get this feeling like, it was like just walking down a tightrope yeah. and you're like any stroke, any stroke could be the one where it pings. And it's like, we're like two months out from the Olympics here or a month or something. I really can't afford to sit on the banks for a month at this point. So um, yeah, we had to do a, an emergency um, call and I think someone went off and they had to, they'd given it to, they'd given our old boat to like a Hungarian double, or like it, it had gone out into the ether somewhere and <laughs> <laughs> been rowed as a double and I, oh, shit, we had to look where we sent that. And um, so they went and tracked down our old boat and gave them a brand new, our brand new boat. Like, And they were like, you know, thumbs up, brand new boat, sweet. Um, so we traded in for our old boat with the uh, aluminium riggers. And I think it was two years old at that point. So I don't know if the boat had developed any flex as well, but it just, it was just instantaneous. You could just feel it's just softer. So, um, yeah, that sort of goes against what, you sort of think stiff is better, but generally that's what people sort of think. But if mm. you can't, if you're going to break <laughs> trying to trying to row with it, then stiff yes. is, is no good. So um, yeah. it just suited our style, I think, uh, of rowing, um, having that little bit more flex. Cool. So that is a wrap for Hamish Bond Part 1. And man, what a banger start to to that uh, these this uh, these two parts of of this episode. I mean, what an absolute legend, Jake. What are your big ones? My big ones. I think I mentioned it earlier, but Hamish um, rode in that four before he got into the pair. And for me, I really wanted to dig into that because you know it, it was uh, the influences that had that it, that you know, that had on him and his development are really important. And, and it's a, it's a definitely a, a facet of his career that I think a lot of people forget about. So it was, you know, the part that I was probably looking forward to the most was chatting about what was it like racing in that for, and, you know, how that led into his uh, development that took him from, you know, racing at Beijing um, experiences that he had there. And then going into 2009, where he eventually got into the pair with Eric. Yeah, and then also speaking about like the 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 relationship between him and Eric and and Dick Tonks was really hectic. I mean, I must say he went into that really openly, and I mean, you know, they touch they touch they go into it quite a bit in the book, and then Eric went into it quite a bit in our show, and then now we kind of really see how difficult it was uh, that relationship. And I, you know, it's pretty tragic, but I mean, I think it was really honest, and I think it's uh, you know it's a part of our sport that needs to get dealt with so i thought that was quite uh quite impressive and but i mean just machines you know that's the the athlete mentality is you know you you get your your sights on the goal and you you chase it no matter what yeah for sure and i think you know that's the thing about the the row show we try and have a, a good look into the athlete's journey and career and, and you know it's anyone that's had any sort of pursuits or <clears throat> really try to achieve something in any sphere of life you'll understand that the ups and downs the disappointments the successes the you know, the goods, the bads that goes with it. So it's important to acknowledge all those points in the athlete's career. But, you know, just stay tuned for, for part two when we have a look into <clears throat> probably the the big thing at the moment, which is racing at the, you know, the Tokyo uh, 2021 Olympics. Um, 
And yeah, besides that, guys, you know, go support the show. Just like we said in the intro, we now partnered up with Rowing South Africa about World uh, Masters Championships in 2023. So if you're interested in that, check it out. We're going to be there. It's going to be a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think if you want any more info, uh, feel free to message us and uh, or go onto the Facebook group and we'll put the link in the in the show notes and, and go check it out. Everyone is super helpful and super keen to to make this regatta work. And I think if we can make this regatta work, uh, it will become it's already such a big event and it's already such a big popular uh, thing to go. I know there's a huge South African contingent that always travels to uh, the Masters Regatta. And I think it's, it needs to be a part of our, our sport that really grows. And, and, you know, that's where we can, we can make a lot of change to, to rowing and the rowing culture. So go check it out and enjoy. And otherwise we'll see you next week for part two. Enjoy guys. We're out. Ciao. Ciao. seems like a, a respectable person we're not speaking to fucking that just eats chips while we're having an interview so i'm gonna avoid the the drink yeah i thought exactly the same <laughs>